Today's scripture reading is from 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. In your blue pew Bible, this is on page 1019. I'll give you a minute to get there. We're going to read the entire chapter, 2 Peter chapter 3. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they are deliberately overlooking this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. This is our uh, fifth and last uh, study on Second Peter. We've uh, taken it in rather large chunks uh, so that we can uh, be, have a comprehensive study of it. Uh, Next week is Ascension Sunday, and we'll talk about Christ's pouring out his gifts upon the church. And then Pentecost, the next Sunday, we're going to begin a series 
12 weeks long on the Holy Spirit. So you can be uh, praying for us uh, in that regard. And uh, during that time, Brian will preach, but then we've got one planned uh, for Ryan Moore to preach too when he gets here in July. So uh, I hope to be a, a rich time of study for us. Let's pray now. <clears throat> Lord, the Holy Spirit that has given us this word, and as Peter earlier said, the Spirit that carried uh, the prophets along so that they truly spoke from God, we pray that that same Holy Spirit would open this word to our hearts, that we would be able to believe it, that it would strike deep within our hearts, that we would embrace it, that we would trust you, and Lord, that we would live out what you call us to live out in this passage. All, Lord, by your sovereign grace, we pray. Amen. So I've been, I have a pretty bad radio in my suburban, so I listen to NPR quite a bit. However, a few weeks ago, NPR was doing fundraising. I hate it when they do fundraising. They have to. So I switched over to the Christian station. Should have stayed on NPR, actually. Uh, <laughs> so a couple of guys are there talking about what's going on in the Middle East, okay? And they're really celebrating what's going on in the Middle East because they're celebrating how bad things are getting. Talking about this terrible thing, another terrible thing, another terrible thing, another terrible thing, and they kind of, you just feel the excitement as they talk about it. It's kind of, well, I kind of knew where they were going, but finally, one of them says, the older man says, I tell you, you better be all prayed up and get your rapture shoes on because it's coming fast. I couldn't find my rapture shoes anywhere, um, but... So this involves, I don't know where you're coming from in terms of believing uh, in a silent rapture. We personally don't feel like this is a teaching from Scripture. But the important thing about this is the view that it entails of a negative future for the church, a negative future for history. So that everything's just about to happen, just about to end, so that There's no sense in doing anything except saving souls and rejoicing that everything's going south. That there's really no real hope for the world until after the rapture. And we get to miss the great tribulation that's coming. And we believe, no, you are going to face, we all are going to face a tribulation till the end. And it is still Jesus' command to us, the one who has all authority in heaven and earth that we must disciple the nations, and that with Paul we join in how he speaks of it in 2 Timothy 2, that we endure everything for the sake of the elect so that wherever they are, whoever they are, the elect may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. But this is kind of the opposite problem that the people to whom Peter is writing had. They were being taught by people not so much about the coming of Christ so soon as to free us from final tribulation and free us from the responsibility to win Jew and Gentile for Christ. They taught that there was no coming of Christ at all and therefore no responsibility to live for Christ. 
So we're going to look at this unbelief that they had, the unbelief that the people of Second Peter were being tempted to embrace. And we'll look at it this way. First, the desire for sin in this unbelief. We'll see that unbelief is driven by a desire for sin. The desire for sin and unbelief. Then the distorted reasoning of unbelief. And those are connected, right? Our desires distort the way we think. And then the final disaster of unbelief. So it's the desire and the distortion and the final disaster of unbelief. And then in verses 11 and following... We're going to talk about the diligence required against such unbelief, okay? The diligence required against unbelief. Gosh, a four-point sermon. What in the world? Uh, (laughs) Supposed to be. All right, first of all, then, the desire for sin and unbelief. Notice it says in verse 4 that they will say, where's the promise of his coming? But you see the motivation of it in verse 3. And it helps if you've got your Bible open and can see these things. But he says, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires. Okay? The scoffing, the making ridicule of the coming of Christ is because of their sinful desires. You see, this unbelief is convenient. It paves the way for disobedience. It drives away any concern or conscience as far away as possible. It silences the opposition, you see. Deny the truth and deny the reality of his coming. It's like Romans 1 when it says about creation that they suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. The clear truth that all things have been made by God. People just suppress it. Act like it's, it's not there. And so this denial leads to sin. God would stand in the way of what I want to do. He would stand in the way of my desire. And so interestingly, my desire dictates my doctrine. Desire creates, you might say, a revelation that's really in my image A revelation or reality that must bow down to what I want to do, how I want to live. Desire becomes a kind of vortex that just sucks up the reality and expels it. And so concerning a final day, very inconvenient, you see. Very inconvenient. No, that's not part of my worldview. You know, answering to God, giving an account of my life, all of my life and thoughts and words and actions, being something I'd be responsible for in the end, facing potential judgment. I'm just going to mark all that as not true. Thank you very much. So, doctrine follows desire and perverts uh, and is perverted by desire. So, We have to guard against this ourselves. We have to guard against wanting to create a reality that is convenient for our own desire. Because when we begin to do that, we're becoming, in our own minds, whether we admit it or not, we're becoming God. We're declaring what reality is going to be. And it's a pretty twisted reality when it has to follow my desire to sin. My desire to sin. Well... Obviously, this kind of desire distorts my reasoning. And one of their reasonings uh, was that 
Everything has been the same since creation. So it's just going to continue to be this way. And his first argument in verses 4 through 7 is, no, everything has not been the same since creation. In fact, the first creation had a cataclysmic ending in the flood. So this God who created the world out of water, that is referring to when the water was... uh, the, the waters fled and he brought forth the land. This world that he created out of water, he also destroyed by that water, by the same word. He said he was going to destroy it and he announced it and, and it happened. Okay, So this, this God has already brought judgment upon this world and remade the world in that. And this time he's going to do it by fire And there will be a new world as a result of that. So he's saying far from continuity, there's been radical discontinuity according to the word. And now that same word that declared that is declaring this. You better expect that it's going to happen. This God of sovereign uh, sovereign word is going to be carried out. And so the world is actually being preserved Notice verse 7, stored up for fire for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. That's the same word he used earlier in chapter 2 verse 4 where the evil angels are being kept for that final judgment. And so the wicked and the angels are being kept for judgment. All is not as it seems. Then the other thing that they were saying apparently in verse 8, is that it's been too long. See, it's, it's interesting how we look at something that's long because it lasts our whole life or even lasts three lifetimes. But from God's viewpoint, it's just short, you know. Who's, who's judging who uh, uh, in this matter? Uh, we can't define how long long is. This is God's uh, realm. It's his arena, and we know nothing about it, right? Uh, He doesn't operate by our time. He operates by his time. Ours is immediate, and it's myopic. We have no idea what we're talking about. And here's the interesting thing. This so-called delay, he says here, he's not slow. This isn't a delay. This is patience. This is God's patience toward us. He says later in verse 15, his patience is salvation. His patience is the way more and more people are saved. Because if he wasn't patient, we deserve, anybody who's apart from Christ, we deserve to be judged yesterday or the day before or last week or last month. Any time that he does not bring judgment to the world is patience that others might repent. It is salvation that God is patient. This is one of the vital aspects of God underscored in the Old Testament. This stock phrase that is used over and over. I'll give you Psalm 103 verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding In steadfast love. And that word, that being slow to anger, is exactly the word used here in 2 Peter. So this is that quality by which he refrains from intervening in judgment as soon as 
we sin. And so he withholds so that we might repent. Listen to what Paul says to the Jews in Romans chapter 2. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And here's the astounding thing. God's delay, if you want to call it that, is, in, is his patience allowing for time To repent. It's his kindness to lead them to repentance. And instead of it leading them to repentance, they're using that delay to mock him and disobey him. I would suggest that's not a good thing to do. But I have done it. We all have in many ways. I did it as a whole way of life before I knew Christ. So instead of delay, what's happening is mercy. This is a time of mercy, a time of God's patience in which he opens the door wide and says, come and receive the salvation that I have accomplished through my son. So there's this desire of sin that drives this belief, this rejection of the coming of Christ that causes this distortion of reasoning and ends finally in disaster. So he says this in verse 10, the day of the Lord will come and it will come like a thief. And it's important to realize that the emphasis here is not so much on the destruction of the universe, although this passage has been taken to be all about that. Okay, you can see a bit of that in verse seven, because he says the the heavens and earth are stored up for fire. But then he defines that being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Okay, so the fire he's talking about is the fire of judgment in the Old Testament. You could you have pages of passages that talk about the fire of God's judgment that talk about the roar of God when he goes forth to judge and how this roar and fire just undermines creation. It wipes it out. It unhinges uh, creation in every way, like you see in this passage. And if you want to see a, a really amazing passage, turn some time to Psalm 18, where he describes in a cataclysmic way the, how God came to rescue him. And you'd think this must be the end of the world, the way he describes how it comes forth with fire and and noise and the unhinging of creation. And yet, this is a way to describe how powerfully God rescued me, okay? So, the whole point of this passage is that where sinners would want to hide themselves in that final day from the wrath of God, as it is expressed in Revelation 6, where you'd think, for instance, we we all know how horrible, how horrible it was in 9-11 that those buildings crashed and crushed those poor people. Or when you see an earthquake and you think of those bodies just crushed under stone. What's it going to be like in that last day when, as John describes it, In Revelation 6, 
The people of the world, even the mighty kings, it says, and the leaders of the world, are crying for the mountains to fall on them and crush them to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. What is going on? I would hope for, I would hope that I could simply be crushed by stone instead of facing this God of wrath. And yet this passage is saying the whole of creation will be stripped bare. It will all be peeled away, wiped free, so that there we are in all of our works to be discovered naked before God. That's why in verse 10 it says, the works that are done on it will be exposed or found. It's a judicial finding out of what we really are, what we really have done. And so, though these scoffers may make ridicule of the coming of God, they may say, it's been so long, it's never going to happen. He says, you can be sure it will happen. And he says, it not only is certain, it's like a thief. It's unpredictable and it's inescapable. To ignore that judgment and then to mock that judgment. That's what they are being tempted to do. And to live a life in utter disregard for the reality that God is coming in judgment. Well... Again and again in the Old Testament, as God moves forth in judgment, he rescues his people. He does that one and the same thing. If you want to see a marvelous statement of this, we don't have time to look at it, but 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 and following, a, a gripping account of how he will come to bring judgment and then at the same time rescue his people. But this final warning, this final call that he gives to us in verses 11 and following. The diligence that's required against this unbelief, this desire and distortion and final disaster must be resisted diligently. It's interesting in verse 14 when he says to be found without spot or blemish. That's the same word that's found in verse 10 where They, the works, will be found and judged. So, we'll either be found in the horrible destruction of judgment or found under the shelter of Jesus Christ with some evidences that we truly have helplessly trusted in Christ and stand in Him on that day. So, he says... Since you're waiting for these things, verse 14, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And that doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect, but you're seeking earnestly to continue to give yourself up to his will. The same thing in verse 11. Since these things are going to happen and be thus dissolved, since there is this dissolving judgment that is coming, what sort of people ought you to be? in holiness and godliness, waiting for that day. And in this, he mentions and announces, we're waiting for the promise of the new heavens and the new earth. 
So he says this new heavens and the new earth is a place where righteousness will dwell. And the idea here is don't be a part of the certain judgment and destruction of the world of unrighteous people like these false teachers have done and like they want you to do, but belong now to this new world of righteousness, this new world of goodness and love and humility among God's people. Don't abandon that to turn your back upon Christ and live however you choose. Live like a person who belongs to this coming kingdom of righteousness. You think of what would, how you would uh, prepare if you were going to marry someone and then have to live, and then you were both going to live in Bangladesh for the rest of your life. So you have to prepare to get married, and then you have to prepare by learning a language and a culture, how you're going to live, uh, where you're going to live, what are you going to do? You just imagine the preparation you would have because that's going to be your life. And, if, and imagine how terrible it would be if you think, well, it won't matter. You just step on the plane and get off. Well, this is something of what he's saying. Live as though you belong to that new home of righteousness. Give evidence even now that you are his. Make every effort to refuse what these are doing. He even underscores by saying, hey, Paul has said the same thing as he wrote to you, as he has in all of his letters. And he said, they reject these things too. This isn't just me and them. They reject everything that God has set forth in this area. Don't go along with what they're saying. Don't give in to this destructive path on which they are. But here's a danger point for us. We, when, when you think about Judgment Day, it's always striking that Scripture says we will be judged by our works. That's unnerving to us. And if we don't understand it, it surely will be unnerving. But it's not meant to be. But it's an indication in Scripture of the connection between trusting in Christ helplessly as your Savior and how you will live or not trusting in Christ and how you will live. Each of those beliefs are so radical and affect you so much that you can be judged by the way you lived as an indicator of your trust in Christ. That's the whole point of this. But it is interesting, it's always based upon how have you lived. So I want to underscore this at the end here, just to structure it a little so that we have a good, clear understanding of how this works. You see, when you were broken over your sin against God, you're, you have a degree of sorrow of what you've done and what you are, and you have this helpless cry from the guilt and punishment of sin. And you realize that only in Christ can I obtain forgiveness. Only Christ has died for sin and taken away sin. And you realize by trusting in Him, I can have a relationship with God of favor and forgiveness that isn't based on my works. 
So I have this new relationship, this new acceptance and favor. And I'm struck with the new love that he's communicated to me. I've seen that this is a God who would sacrifice his own son for me. And that love, as we sang of it in our hymn, we see this peerless Lord Jesus. Peerless in his love. And as he said earlier in this uh, letter in which we sang, it's that peerless love, that, that beauty in Christ that causes us to begin to leave our sin. That, that's what attracts us, gives us this, this forceful affection that displaces our affection for sin. And we have a new life in the Holy Spirit. We see, when we have this helpless and hopeful trust, we begin to be able to love others more and more with the same love that he loved us. It's very, very slow at times. It's unsteady. It fails so many times. It goes backwards sometimes. Sometimes it doesn't even look like it's there. We give full weight to how unsteady it can be in us. But still, this love fundamentally holds us and begins to heal us and begins to repair us and begin to reconstruct us so that more and more we tend toward patience and kindness toward everybody and toward those who are closest to us. We tend toward the recognition of our own part in the problems we face in relationships. Confessing my own sin and not just seeing someone else's sin. I begin to have a new humility in serving others because Christ has had such a radical humility in serving me. I begin to have a joy in sacrificial love as he, for the joy set before him, sacrificed himself for me. We begin to know shalom and peace and hope in the midst of difficulty that frees us from anxiety and fear and anger and the mistreatment that we give others when we do. We begin to walk in more and more gratitude, more and more adoration, more and more freedom, more and more joy in all that God is. But if not, if not broken and humble, if not astonished by His grace, if not grateful for His forgiveness, then we tend to be harsh and critical and unforgiving and short and tense and moody and sullen and angry and shut down, unresponsive or explosive, rarely confessing our own sin or even being able to consider our own sin in conflict. And, of course, following along these lines with that pride and that fear is gossip and slander and judging others severely and strife and factions, grouping ourselves as the better ones and them as the worst ones, looking down our noses at others of a different class or race, prejudice of all kinds, hatred and all the terrible things that people do to each other in this world. You see... When you put your trust in this God of love who's offered his son or not, it has everything to do with the kind of life you will live. Everything. If that love means nothing or it begins to mean everything to you, 
will radically affect your life. And you one day will either be asking for the rocks to fall upon you and crush you that you might escape his wrath, or in the sweet words that were sung in our offertory, we will not be burned by the fire. He is the Lord our God. We are not consumed by the flood, upheld, protected, gathered up. What would be so precious to you that you would give it up and reject this Lord Jesus Christ? What would it be? Oh, I urge you. God himself is showing you patience and kindness that you might repent and have this Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Oh, Lord God, we... Thank you for the revelation of your word, which, as we believe it, clears the cobwebs, clears our hazy vision, clears our hazy view of the future, brings reality right before our faces. Oh, Lord, call us forth. Lord, renew people even now, for we know none of us would have trusted you, none of us will trust you, unless you draw us by your powerful spirit, unless you renew our hearts, unless you give us eyes to see the beauty of Christ, so that we will leave everything to follow him. Bless us, oh bless us, for Jesus' sake, amen.